0: Hello. My name is Michelle O'Brien, and I will be having a conversation with Naomi Clark for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is March 3rd, 2017, and this is being recorded at NYU MetroTech.
1: Hello. Hi. Tell me uh, about your growing up. Uh, I grew up primarily in Seattle, Washington on the west coast, um, although I was born in Southern California, which is where my parents met while well, they were both studying at, uh, at UCLA. Uh, and then I spent the first couple of years of my life after that in, in London, where my, my father was doing postdoctoral research in immunology. Uh, my sister was born there, but then not long after that, uh, we moved to Seattle, and that's sort of where a lot of my first memories and childhood memories begin. Um, so, yeah, during my childhood, my, my, uh, my dad was working at the University of Washington. My mom was working as a social worker and also taking care of me and my sister. Uh, and we went to public school, um, lived in... Uh, mostly in Capitol Hill, which was at the time sort of becoming the burgeoning gay neighborhood of Seattle. And, yeah, and then that's, yeah, that's like, I guess is the backdrop of my childhood. <laughs> mm-hmm. Tell me an early memory that you have. Um, hmm, gosh, I have so, I sort of have like a, just a flood of random impressions. Um, any, anything in particular that, like a subject? How about Capitol Hill? Oh, about Capitol Hill. So, we we lived right near um, a big park that's on the top of Capitol Hill, Volunteer Park, and that was the neighborhood that I sort of first learned to navigate as a child. Like I sort of got an impression of where things were, you know where was the nearest candy store and then like, where was the slightly bigger drugstore store that you could get to if you walked a little further. Um, and the, the path that I walked on the most was along the edge of that park, uh, heading towards the, uh, hospital, uh, that's, that's still up there today on, uh, on 15th street. Mm-hmm. And, um, Along the way, there was a, a used bookstore that was in just a, like a, a little cottage uh, along the the north side of, of 15th Street. And it was my habit to sort of walk there when I was, I don't know, from from the age of uh, six or seven up up to, you know, 10 or 11, uh, 12 years old. I would just kind of walk over to the bookstore and just sort of use it as a reading library. They had a lot of uh, old um, sci-fi and fantasy books, especially from the, the 60s and 70s, and I would kind of sit on a milk crate and just like read through books. Uh, I guess the, and like this, the old guy who worked in that bookstore tolerated my presence. I was obviously like a nerdy bookish little kid, and so I would just sort of sit there with the bookstore cat and read for hours, and then I would walk back home, And so I sort of knew that, that pathway really well. How did your family get along? Um, my family got along pretty well. My my parents had had fights at times, and they eventually ended up getting divorced when I was maybe thirteen or fourteen, which didn't come as a huge surprise to me because there there were always times when they didn't get along. My my mother is Japanese, uh, and my my dad is of many generations old American stock, mostly uh, English and, and Irish, although my grandmother on that side is is Welsh and was also sort of an immigrant who came to the U.S. as a as a World War II bride. Um, and my mom always had a little bit of, of trouble dealing with the expectations of American culture, especially when it came to how she felt like as a woman in the United States, she was supposed to be emotionally demonstrative or, or warm in certain ways that she sort of chafed against. And um, yeah, and so at times my, my dad or and my dad's family and, and some of uh, their peers felt like she was a little bit unemotional or cold or sort of, you know, not interested in doing a lot of the emotional labor that, that maybe is expected of a American wife and mother. So. That, that that was something that they had conflicts about. I remember them also fighting a lot about um, where where one of them had had left the scissors or a household object and things being out of place. And like, so that was kind of a weird uh, recurring source of tension when I was a kid. But they did really pr- try to prioritize making sure that my sister and I were well taken care of and that we knew that we were loved. And so I, I feel like I, I grew up in a pretty... Uh, supportive, loving household other than those tensions um, and the other thing that really stands out, actually not not too long before they got divorced um, was that my my aunt, my father's youngest sister um, was diagnosed with HIV and there and that was sort of a huge family crisis and my my aunt and my grandmother for that reason, sort of moved up to the Seattle area because my dad, who was working in uh, immunology and microbiology at the University of Washington, um, was sort of able to persuade my aunt to apply to be in some clinical trials for, for AZT, which was at the time an experimental drug. And, um, and so, yeah, he sort of used his connections and persuaded her that she should try this drug to sort of prevent uh, HIV from crossing the the uterine threshold because she, uh, she was also pregnant uh, at the same time um, with uh, yeah with the child of of course herself and um, her partner who she had um, who she had got also was HIV positive and it sort of transmitted the the virus to her uh, so that's a very effective use of ACT. Yes. Yeah, and it turned out that that was part of what um, that was the, the clinical trial that demonstrated like oh it's effective for that. And so my my cousin who was born around that time um, was didn't was not HIV positive mm-hmm. uh, due to that early use of HIV of, of AZT. And uh, but it also it placed a certain amount of strain on my family I think, um, and it wasn't all totally clear to me at that age, but there were, yeah, there was a lot of upset and crying, uh, and stress and, um, that, uh, yeah. And my, my father feeling like my, you know, my mother wasn't as as supportive as she could have been of everything that was going on. And, uh, yeah, so my, my parents ended up getting divorced a couple years later. Uh, and that was also, um, a few years after, we we went to live in Japan for a year or two, so that was a, a, like a major landmark in my childhood. Uh, and I guess I, you know, now that I look back, that was kind of on the road to like my parents trying to figure out how to resolve their, their, their marital difficulties. Um, my mom felt like she had had to sacrifice a lot of her own career ambitions because... My my dad had this professor position that he was sort of taking up most of his time between research and teaching, and she had a slightly more flexible job, um, doing translations of um, works by Japanese women authors and other um, and some feminist sociology from Japan, and also working as a social worker at a, a Japanese retirement home in Seattle, and. Um, because she had this sort of more flexible schedule and was some years was working um, out of the home, and, but a lot was working at home, she, like the burden of uh, childcare really fell on her. And so she, she really felt like she had, had to make a lot of sacrifices to sort of fall into that typical role of the, of the woman who stays at home to raise the kids, which was like never in her conception of what she wanted to be when she was sort of growing up. She, she was one of the first graduates of the, the first women's college in Japan. Um which kind of opened up after the war because she was a she was a kid uh in world war two when when like Tokyo was being bombed and um so yeah, it wasn't her idea of like what her life would turn out to be, and so we went back to Japan for a year so that she could do research there and my my dad had a uh visiting professor position at Osaka university and we we lived there, and that was like a a huge momentous event in. Um, the lives of me and my sister, because we were suddenly sort of plucked out of our you know familiar environs with friends and uh, kids at school that we knew, and and we went to Japan. We didn't didn't we barely spoke any Japanese. We'd done some Saturday school lessons in Japanese, but it was kind of like barely conversant at all. So we were just stuck in Japanese public school. Um, where nobody spoke any English at all, and we kind of just had to learn how to speak English. I think I was eleven years old at the time, uh, so that was like a big, a big culture shock, and also like a, a just an enormous challenge, and was pretty uh, alienating in a lot of ways and isolating. But uh, yeah, I I don't know. I I guess I like to think it it made me sort of resilient in some ways, and certainly really changed the kinds of uh, culture, both pop culture and traditional culture that I was exposed to, and you know, really was maybe the first time I was like, Oh, I have this, this whole other huge side to my heritage that's not just the the food that my mom makes and, you know, like my grandmother visiting occasionally, which uh, which she would from Japan. So yeah, that was a yeah, pretty momentous time. That was all sort of within the space of a few years that we went to Japan and my then my aunt was, was diagnosed with HIV. What and my your, parents what's that? That uh, would have been, it was 1987 when we went to Japan. Uh, it was probably around, it was 90, 1988 or 89 when my um, aunt was diagnosed with HIV, and it was 1989 or 1990 when my parents got divorced, I think.
0: I might be remembering wrong. Tell me about some of the Japanese culture that had an influence on you.
1: Well, probably... As an 11- and then 12-year-old in Japan, the things that had the biggest influence on me were um, television, specifically a, like animated shows on TV that I watched when I was over there, and um, candy. <laughs> it's these things that, uh, that uh, five years later were also really popular in the United States. <laughs> so I, I sort of came back knowing about all this stuff. And then like you know started to get popular here um, so I was you know watching cartoon shows like uh, Dragon Ball that got that got popular here in the United States in the in the 90s but I was sort of really into that stuff in the you know as a 11 or 12 year old in the 80s um, and yeah definitely Japanese comic books and yeah the types of candy that they had there a lot of a lot of Japanese food I sort of really Came to to love and feel a strong connection to in that period as well, and um, yeah, and then a little yeah to some extent uh, Japanese video games because the uh, the Nintendo console system had not come out in the United States when I left to go to Japan, and it was relatively new in Japan. And while I was in Japan, the Super the Super Nintendo, which over there is called the the Famicom and the Super Famicom were both released, and so like all of the kids that I knew at school were totally wild for that, and we, we weren't allowed to have one. I think my, you know, my parents were not real big on comic books or video games and that kind of thing, but I spent a lot of time at friends' houses, uh, you know, playing Legend of Zelda and stuff like that. Uh, and then I, you know, I came back to the U.S. and I was like, oh my gosh, I have to tell you guys about this, you know, after <laughs> a year. And uh, nobody knew what I was talking about, but then like six months later, all that stuff came out you know, in the United States as well. Um, so I got to enjoy this, you know, feeling of being in the know or being like, oh yeah, that's, that's old. I know about that already. Um, and that was definitely, it was actually in Japanese comic books that I encountered a bunch of trans themes early on, like sort of as an adolescent, which had huge resonance for me because I was aware that I was trans. Um, but I hadn't really, other than like reading Really horribly dry, scary encyclopedia articles. You know, I, like I hadn't really encountered um, it being talked about. You know, and if you read encyclopedia articles, there's all this stuff about like, this is what transvestism is, right? Um, but in Japan, there was such a wide variety of by American standards, like relatively uncensored themes in comics that you would have like all of these like magical transformation stories where where um, where people's bodies were being transformed uh, and having like gender changes and things like that. And I was like, wow, this is like really, really something. It's like someone's like staring into the recesses of my brain. Um, so that, that was quite a like... Um, I guess you it's like it made concrete a lot of things that I've been thinking about for a long time to see it sort of like printed on a page and reproduced. It's like and these were comics for kids too. I should be pretty clear. It's not like adult comics, but these kinds of things that would be considered too perverted in American comics are like complete, considered completely fine for kids in Japan. So um, yeah, so there there was all this stuff about with adolescent kids switching genders. Female to male, male to, male to female, whatever, um, and it was a little bit mind blowing for me at eleven. Do you remember any specific ones? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, the one that really stuck with me, and that I demanded help from friends to to like help uh, help translate all the words, so that I made sure I understand all the slang slang terms in it, <laughs> was a comic called um, Magical Taru, which was I think translated into French and English later on, but it's a relatively obscure comic. It's uh, a comic about a... I think it's a, a boy in middle school who somehow acquires like a weird little magical imp friend who produces all sorts of strange gadgets. It's kind of derivative of an earlier of an earlier uh, comic and cartoon series called Doraemon, which is about a magical cat robot from the future. But in this case, it's just a sort of you know little magical like uh cute goblin who uh, every every episode or issue um tries to solve the ordinary like middle school problems of this of this boy by producing some kind of like bizarre m- magical solution. It's like, oh, you're too short to be on the basketball team. well, you know like here, you know, wrap these magic bandages around your legs and they'll make your legs super, super long and rubbery or something like that, right? Where it's, like, a a little bit, like, a little bit bizarre and slightly uncanny. Um, And then, of course, there are some sort of problem that results as, you know, as a result of having, like, giant, long, rubbery legs to be on the basketball (laughs) team, right? So it's this sort of farcical sitcom style. But one of them was definitely... I You know, it was sort of similar to lots of sort of sports teams or like, oh, like someone has a crush on someone else, sort of like saved by the bill kind of stuff. But one of them was, I don't know, trying to... I, I forget what the rationale was uh, because I, I didn't read Japanese very well and so I had to get help translating this stuff. But for some reason, um, it, I think in order to support a female friend, the idea was, well, this... Um, this, like, protagonist had to, was like, I need to turn into a girl somehow, and so (laughs) drank this magic potion that, like, makes him turn into a girl, and with, like, a couple pages of, like, body transformation stuff and things like that, and I was like, whoa, this is, this is, like, pretty intense and a little, like, a little bit sexual in a way that would be maybe considered PG-13 in the U.S., but also sort of, like, a a topic area, which, you know, like American cartoons and comics for kids is very, very rarely would delve into. And then it sort of goes on, and then, like, you know, other, other people drink the potion, and, like, people are just sort of gender swapping everywhere, and so it becomes this this, this funky gender swap fantasia. You know? Excellent. Tell me about your teenage years. Uh, yeah, so as a teenager, I was, I was back in the U.S., and I went to public school In Seattle, in the uh, Central District, which is the sort of historic African-American neighborhood of Seattle, I went to Garfield High School, which was about uh, roughly like half African-American and half everyone else. It was actually a pretty segregated public school in the sense that there was a gifted program that um, involved students being bused from around Seattle to sort of take part in this kind of like a magnet school program or something like that. And um, the gifted classes were were probably something like 80% white, um, or maybe 80% like white and Asian, and um, or more, maybe maybe closer to 90% if you include the Asian kids. And um, whereas the non-gifted uh, classes were were like majority black students. Mm-hmm. So within the school, you sort of had two schools side by side. Uh, and although there was some social overlap uh, be- between the two sides of the school, it was like for the most part, you know, people kind of had their own cliques. They were sort of friends with people in their classes and so forth. So it was, it was, I think, a, a funny kind of like racially tense environment to be going to school in when I, when I look back on it and I think about how, how odd that was. Um, But at the same time, there was this kind of overall feeling of like, oh, you know, we go to a really diverse school where we learn about racial justice ideas, right? So like everyone in the school, in the public school in the early 90s, were, you know, taught ideas like racism is prejudice plus power, right? That's sort of like where I was exposed to that idea. And I don't think I realized until later when I went to college that like, oh, that's not what everyone thinks racism is. Um, So it was pretty socially progressive despite having this, uh, segregated mix and the school was um, was known in part, like we had the Jimi Hendrix Memorial Library and we had the Quincy Jones Auditorium so like, the because they had both gone to that school and so it had, was sort of built on this bedrock of like, there's, you know, sort of important black pioneers in arts and culture in Seattle and, um, and yeah, and that was I was just thinking about this the other day because uh, I oh I watched that that documentary Thirteenth by Ava DuVernay um about the prison industrial complex and I was thinking oh yeah it was in high school when two really significant things happened um, that was the first time I saw a childhood friend of mine being thrown up against a police car and handcuffed like out of nowhere for no reason. Because our school was was somewhat heavily policed at times. Whenever there was like a large gathering of students, even for a sort of ordinary assembly or something like that, the police would be there. And if there was anything, you know, if they thought people were getting out of hand or whatever, they would usually, they would, you know, grab some black students, um, you know, young guys in their teenage years, and, you know, in some cases, like, arrest them, right? And so, and we had some... We had some like drive-by shootings and things like that, but usually after school. And we we had some other problems. That was also the first time that I had a friend who was very out and openly gay and kind of gender nonconforming in the way that he was gay, and uh, and and he was beat up by some students from another school, um, and. It was while, yeah, none of us, none of the rest of his friends were around, and we were all kind of totally devastated and felt like helpless as as far as what to do about it. But this was before there was anything like a uh, gay-straight alliance. It was before that era. So it was, we were pretty clear that, you know, the, the administration of the school didn't approve of gay students. It wasn't like Yeah, it wasn't treated like a hate crime or like a real uh, cause for concern beyond the level of anyone getting beat up. I think that one administrator made some comments kind of to the effect of like, well, maybe you shouldn't dress like that. Uh, Maybe you shouldn't be so flamboyant. Uh, And we were all incredibly, incredibly mad about that. And I remember it was kind of an era where my, my father especially was still had some homophobic views that were kind of acceptable for a liberal in the Clinton era, right? Um, Which now he was, you know, is horrified to sort of think back that that, that's what he thought, right? Like most liberals are now, right? But um, yeah, but so that was like a, I I think it was a lot of arguments in my teenage years were about like, no, actually, it's perfect, you know, it's perfectly fine for gay people to be able to adopt children. Like, you know, how dare you? Um, say anything like that. And we were protesting the Iraq war uh, at the time. And so that was the first Iraq war under George H.W. Bush um, when I was in high school before, before Clinton was elected. And uh, the other thing, oh yeah, and the other thing not long after that was I found another childhood friend of mine who grew up like four blocks from where I lived was deeply racist. And at one point sort of confided in me that he had, like, a lot of anti-black racism in, like, real pretty disgusting and horrifying ways. Um, because he sort of was kind of trying to feel me out about it. And I was, like, completely shocked and disgusted. And was like, why, why would you even, why would you even tell me this? Like, that's, that's totally wrong. That's not cool for you to say. But I think i was I was shocked at, at at all three of these things, the sort of the the homophobic violence, which I kind of knew was out there, but had kind of intruded so suddenly and sharply, was more shocking to me than having people drive by our school and shoot at it with with guns because um, that sort of seemed a little bit like, well, that just happens sometimes um, <laughs> and then the uh, and then the police violence against. People I had been in classes with since I was like, you know, seven years old, suddenly was like, oh, now the, the black guys that I went to school with are perceived as dangerous threats by the police in ways that the rest of us are not. And, um, and that, yeah, and then some other people, others of my classmates are like super racist against the same guys. And I just had no idea. And I, I had never, that was the first time I like really encountered up close, face-to-face, that kind of racism. And I was just like f- totally shocked mm-hmm. and, uh, and it rocked back on my heels. I think it did, it did politicize me in some ways. It was, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of activism in Seattle that I was aware of as a teenager, other than teens organizing against the uh, what was called the teen dance ordinance, preventing um, underage um, underage people from going to musical shows that sort of felt like it's sort of the local activism that was happening in the grunge era. Um, but then, yeah, but then I, I got involved in volunteering for the ACLU and we started an Anna Senior National Chapter and did a lot of like high school student letter writing. Um, and I think, yeah, that was part, in part a result of like having those kinds of encounters. So it sounds like you had some queer community of sorts in high school. Yeah, I mean, there were actually a lot of queers at my school, but there was only one person who was out, yeah. right? Everyone else, it was sort of like, oh, you think like maybe this person's gay or like, oh, that girl is probably gay because, and you know, because of the way she dresses or cuts her hair, but it's never like really acknowledged, even though, um, you know, I have... Yeah, I have a, a high school classmate who I haven't seen much since, but who um, transitioned. I, 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 have, I, I have a number of high school classmates, if I count people who are like above or below me by a couple years. There are probably like five of us in, in that range around me who transitioned. Um, I went to school with, uh, with Chris Hayashi, who was also this, at the same high school at the same time. And I was in, um, in high school with, with his younger sister, it was in my class. Uh, and, but, but there was only, only my one friend was, was really out in a way that was super visible and everyone else was sort of waited until college, I guess you could say. And it was in part because it just was not a, a, a positive atmosphere, uh, in part because of, yeah, in part because of some of the, the social tensions around the school, um, in part because we had one gay teacher who was like censured and fired on after being sort of accused of having inappropriate relationships with students which I'm pretty sure was like totally like made up right so it was it was pretty clear to everyone like yeah this is not you're going to like catch shit somehow for it and so even even the students who were um, yeah, who were sort of more visibly gender nonconforming in some way, kind of like played it down, right, and weren't sort of like weren't out. And yeah, and that was certainly true of me too. I mean, I was, um, I was like very, very aware of being a trans student and I only confided in like a couple of my, my closest friends um, when I was in high school, like swore them to secrecy because I was completely convinced that, you know, um, that my life would be over in some sense, if if I was outed, right? That I would, that I would, you know, I I wouldn't be able to go to college. I would might be like I don't know, like I had um, kind of anti fantasies, which are almost certainly not true, but I was really afraid that you know maybe somehow I'd be sent for reparative therapy, or um, or that I would just be made to feel so ashamed that like that I wouldn't know what to do I'd have to like commit suicide out of shame or something like that but I was a teenager and I was so it was so intense a set of feelings that it was like about as far from any kind of like rational consideration as you can imagine when did that start to shift for you um not until a number of years later I came to New York Uh, to go to college. I went to Columbia University. And by that time I was I was kind of firmly in a kind of like, I'm depressed and not really thinking about this. I think at times I was like, oh, maybe the best way to be trans would be to get really good at lucid dreaming. And I was really sort of like, I was like, I'm going to teach myself how to lucid dream. And then, you know, I can basically transition while I'm while I'm asleep. <laughs> right? That was like sort of my avoidant way of dealing with it. I was very, very depressed throughout college, um, had really no relationships, um, like really close relationships of any kind, and just kind of like casual social relationships is sort of hold up in myself. And uh, I went on to... I, I worked at an online magazine in college uh, for a number of years and sort of paid for about half of my, my college costs that way um, by kind of, you know, I sort of partially put myself through school and partially with my, my parents' savings and, um, and then sort of kept doing that after school, uh, sorry, yeah, after school sort of worked at that magazine full time and then that magazine kind of folded in one of the early like internet crashes uh, when a lot of companies sort of folded up or went bankrupt. And then I went to work for Lego, which was the, the toy company which had opened uh, offices here in New York. And it was during that period that two things happened. One was this, the September 11th, 2001 attack, which was not far from where I was working. is I worked about a mile north of the World Trade Center. And the second was that I had a bunch of queer co-workers um, at LEGO. Because at the time, people sort of working in creative fields on the internet were a collection of kind of art and design weirdos from around New York. And there were a lot of, of young people who had some technical skills or who had you know done a little web design and a lot and a lot of queer people and so I I had I had some queer friends they're all women um, at Lego and I, I was kind of in a department that was sort of mostly women handling website stuff It was maybe like 60 40 and um, the yeah and so I, I had queer friends for the first time and then September 11th stuff happened and that was... Extremely galvanizing for me. I was like, "Oh, okay, I have to kind of stop being miserable about being trans and stop just sort of like occasionally confiding in one person." Um, and it was actually, yeah, one of my my close friends and my coworkers, uh, who, yeah, who was, was gay and who. But who like she and I got kind of involved in a way that was, yeah, you know, we were like both cheating on our primary partners at, at work, um, in this sort of post September Eleventh weirdness where like everyone was kind of traumatized and freaked out, and I just remember we we drank an enormous amount, and we were drinking after work a lot, and like nobody knew what was going on or what was going to happen and we were all pretty young we were like just a few years out of college and we we're working at this big company um because we were young people with internet skills and um and they were paying us pretty well i like these dot-com companies you know and um so we so we drank a lot i think that that was sort of like a formula for that and we were all like really stressed out and yeah, so it was like, those, those co-workers who I ended up talking more with about being trans, one of them I kind of, like, fooled around in alleys with uh, during that period, too. And so it was a little bit like being in high school again in some ways, uh, in part because, you know, I'd been, like, pretty emotionally shut down after high school. And, um... Yeah, I don't know. And then at one point, I was just like, okay, I guess I better, I guess I better research how to be trans on the internet. And I think it was in like 2002, right? Because i not, not that long after September 11th. Uh, and so I basically, I, I sat at work for like seven hours or something late at night uh, and was like, oh, okay, like here here's a bunch of stuff online about being trans. And it was really... I have to say, uh, Andrea James's website, T S Roadmap. Yeah, remember that. Um, yeah, that was a that was this like super practical kind of retrogressive, certainly sort of set in its ways of like you know here's here's your practical guide on being a trans woman. And I was like, oh well, somebody has kind of laid this all out, uh, and it was again, it was sort of like made it really concrete. Even though, you know, like a, a couple of years later, I was like, oh my gosh, that site, it's like so wrong in a bunch of ways. Because I certainly did not just like follow all the instructions on the site. But at the time, I looked at it, and I was like, oh wow, this is actually a thing, and it's doable. And then I like cried for about an hour, and I was like, okay, <laughs> I better do this. And so then I like, I think I bought every book I could find about... um about being trans or transgender, including some medical texts and, um, you know, the the autobiographical works that were around then, Ricky Wilkins' book, and Kate Pornstein's book, Pat Califia, Mm -hmm. and, uh, oh, what was that book, How Sex Changed the History? I was like, that that, that one, I was like, wow, this is like, I kind of agree with this one, kind of politically, unlike a lot of the other ones, and, um, and, and so I, like, found every trans book I could find, which was, like, you know, 15 books. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so I was reading them kind of privately. And then that, I, was, I was living with three other people in a two-bedroom apartment on the Upper West Side at the time, uh, and two cats. And so, inevitably, someone was like, why do you have all these books? <laughs> and I was like, okay, I guess I'm out. And and that, that, yeah, and that was kind of it. Wow.
0: Mm-hmm. What was um, your sense of like, what did you imagine uh, uh, coming out as trans or transitioning would be like? What was your developing conception of that?
1: Was oh yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Um, because at the time, even though there were more people like Andrea James being like, look, here's what you do. Her model of it was like, it's super, super expensive, and you should save up $300,000. (laughs) It was kind of basically what it was. And I was like, okay, maybe I could do that. Maybe if I work really hard and save my money, I'll save up $300,000 or whatever for all of this stuff. But at least she was also like, look, here's what you do first. You have to get electrolysis or whatever, right? And I was like, and that will cost $70,000. Um... And so I was like, okay, at least I could start. So I was like, I was under the impression, it was like super difficult, extremely expensive. Um, I was really, I was like, well, I either, I was, the reason I was crying for an hour was like, I guess I have to do this or else I'm just going to die or be really miserable. So I got, I have to do it, right? It's like, maybe it's going to cost all the money that I have for for 10 years, but whatever. It doesn't matter because it's like a life or death thing. Um... And then the other, yeah, and I was super terrified because I had all these fears going back to childhood of like, oh, I'm just going to, I'm going to die if I, if I am outed in one way or another. And, uh, and talking to my, my small number of queer friends from work about this. They sort of convinced me, you know, one, you know, one in particular. She was like, "Look, you know, you're not going to die. You're not going to be jobless." I was, I had a pretty clear vision, which is influenced by some material made by trans people on the web, that being trans was like a living hell. There was, there's a website that used to be on GeoCities that had like giant flashing skulls, and was basically like. Do not, do not transition unless you absolutely have to, because you will lose everything and your life will be terrible. But so, only do it if you are going to die. And and so I was like, okay, I guess I have to, but this is going to be really bad. So, I was like, okay, what's the worst that could happen? I could, like, have no job. Um, maybe be like discriminated against in housing somehow. Like maybe get kicked out of my home. I might not have any friends. Uh, children will throw things at you on the streets. Uh, people will yell at you. Nobody will hire you. Um, yeah, you'll never go on a date ever again. Yeah, it was sort of like a litany of stuff like this. And I was like, well, that doesn't really matter. I, I don't, there's, it's not really a choice. So I was like, I guess I just have to prepare for all of those things, and um, yeah. And so my 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 friend was like, "Look, you're going to be able to get a job somehow. Uh, I like even if a lot of places won't hire you, there are there are you know like LGBT organizations. I don't even remember if I think it was at at the point where LGBT had come into use." But she was like, look at the gay center, the, you know, you know, maybe the gay center would hire you to do something, like anything. You could like work in an office there, you could like uh, clean up after hours, you could like be a, a janitor. And I was like, yeah, you know, I was like, I, and I had done um, janitorial work, like custodial work, and i I like been a dishwasher, i have been like cleaned up on the side of the road so when I was a teenager doing odd jobs, I was like, yeah, you know what, it's not really, it's not the end of the world, even though I was, had met, ma- I was, had been pretty psyched to get uh, a pretty decent um, wage as a, as a website worker um, in the early 2000s, I was like, yeah, I guess that's, that's totally, it's better than being dead. Um, and now it seems so bizarre that she was like, "Well, maybe the maybe the LGBT community center will it will, will hire trans people to be custodians." Um, just yeah. Like nothing against custodial work, that's for sure. But it's sort of weird to be like, "This is what I can maybe imagine you doing." Uh, but I, she was also sort of presenting it as like, "Look, you know, what's the worst thing? It's not like right. you're actually going to starve to death. We'll find a job, some kind of job for you." But that was sort of like what I was contemplating. Did you Um, know any trans people? I did not know any trans people. I had only ever seen trans people on television. I had nobody, nobody that I could talk to who was trans. Um, I, yeah, it wasn't until after I had been out for a little while that I even saw another trans person in the flesh. When I actually went to the LGBT community center and there was a panel about... Um, about restroom access that included Melissa Sklars, who is still around in New York City politics, and Dean Spade. And uh, I was, I got super mad uh, at Melissa Sklars and this one trans guy whose name I can't remember who was on the panel because they were like, well, you know, I can understand why why some people would be you know really worried about having cross dressers or people whose gender isn't stable in some way or you know people that they think look like men in bathrooms we have to be reasonable about this and dean dean was like no that's <laughs> that is bullshit and this was right after dean had been thrown out of the grand central um, bathrooms during the WTO protests i believe And, um, yeah, for for sort of, like, not looking sufficiently masculine. So he was pretty pissed about it, and I was also like, that is fucked up. Because at that point, the only contact that I had with trans people was going online to look for message boards. And at the time, I was hanging out in a website that I think is still around called Susan's Place or something like that. Um or it might have just be called like TG Forums or something and it was all this very like passing oriented, what I think of as na- now is like the pretty conservative transition advice where it was like oh you know post a picture of yourself wearing makeup and we'll criticize your makeup and be like oh you look this makes you look too trans or makes you look too masculine or something like that and yeah, like there was sort of no hint of trans liberation or anything that was very like, like genuinely trans positive. It was mostly like, oh, here's here's how you can get by. Oh, you know, we have to kind of um, figure out some way to like get people to tolerate us kind of stuff. And uh, and I, I kind of, I chafed against it a lot, but I was also just trying to figure out like how how I could actually survive and get by and they're not the, like the only trans people that I knew were sort of like the people that posted on that forum so it was it was a big relief when I was I actually saw like oh there's someone there are trans people who are like no that's not okay like we actually need something better because that it was much more in line with my my view of politics since my my family is pretty leftist and we believe in protest politics and we believe in in more radical change and not just kind of trying to like accommodate and tolerate. So, um, yeah, so it, it, it was a relief to, to, to actually see like Dean Spade up on stage saying that stuff. And I think I, I made sure to go to a Clagg's conference that he was speaking at next because I was like, I want to know more about this Dean Spade character. And then I introduced myself him and that's how I, I got involved in uh, in SRLP too, which he was sort of putting together at that point. Tell me about SLRP. So, SRLP, the Sylvia Rivera Law Project, uh, was initially just dean. It was kind of a name that he had chosen for this fellowship that he was doing at the Urban Justice Center, uh, in part because Sylvia Rivera had recently passed away, and he wanted to kind of commemorate her, and had liked, had you know talked with some of her family about whether it was appropriate. The um, and he was a you know a white trans guy who was not, um, not heavily invested in the way that he presented himself and sort of looking like a like a, like meeting. 100% societal expectations of what, like, a man is supposed to look like. And, uh, but, uh, at the time he was wearing a lot of Argyle and kind of had like a dapper, faggy style going on. Uh, and I was like, yeah, I approve of this. <laughs> um, you know, the sort of queering of the, of the trans, of transgender expression, right? As opposed to let's just try to emulate like cis normativity as much as possible and uh, Dean was had basically just opened up a little legal clinic to help whatever trans people were around with legal problems and he had uh, a couple, like he had was not long out of law school and had this fellowship at the Urban Justice Center and had a couple interns who were in law school including Franklin Romeo and um and Bridge Joyce. And uh, and they were all sort of, just like you know had a bun a lot of clients coming in being like, hey, I need help with my name change mostly. And I I, I was kind of in in uh, intent on doing it doing my name change DIY. This is like would be into like two thousand two, but I I was so paranoid about it that I, I asked them to look it over for me. So they didn't actually represent me in my name change, but like I got there. Their legal advice and and work with them on it and uh, and so I was sort of I was hanging around with them and Dean was like hey who are you where did you come from was kind of the feeling and I was like yeah I'm I'm just me I'm around and uh, yeah and so I started I started hanging out with those guys because we were sort of politically simpatico I was really into the fact that they were doing this work and they were kind of espousing a pretty different point of view. That was also around the same time that I I switched message boards and found strapon.org, which had been around for a while. I don't remember how I found it originally, but I stumbled into it and I was like, oh, this is a much more, Culturally relevant to me younger people people with radical politics people, you know with the same kind of sensibilities that I have um, Like place to hang out that's not uh, sort of People who are ten years older than me and really deeply set on trying to like Have as normative lives as possible Uh, and so yeah between that and then some of the folks who were around SRLP in those early years, I suddenly had kind of an actual social setting that I, I felt like I could exist in um, and not be totally alone, which was, was a, a new experience for me. Um, but SRLP, yeah, started growing quickly. The, uh, Dean was involved in a lot of things. He was trying to actually set it up as an organization rather than just himself at a fellowship started talking with another friend, Sonia Sivisand, about whether they could start it up as an organization and like she would do the fundraising and he would sort of do the legal work. And, uh, and then, you know, there were a bunch of us around, uh, so the legal interns and other friends, and it was, it was a little social circle of trans people. I remember one year we all marched in, in the Pride Parade, as a little SRLP contingent. That must have been, like, 2003, maybe? And, um, yeah, we were the only ones handing out flyers about, like, police police brutality. Mm-hmm. And, uh, people hated it <laughs> that we were doing that. Oh, wow.
0: um,
1: I had one old lady w- wad up a flyer about pl- police brutality and throw out, throw it at me saying that it was nonsense, like an old white lady. <laughs> um, but it did sort of strike home the fact that like, okay, we're we're doing this stuff that people don't really want to hear or think about. Um, we're the kind of weird, angry end of the LGBT spectrum at the end of the T. And uh, so it, it felt important, and it was it was a social context and uh, And there was work to do, and I, I started off kind of by trying to help put together. The first website that SRLP had, which was really a page to get information out about toilet training, the documentary mm-hmm. that SRLP was working on at the time uh, with Tara Matek, the a filmmaker, and um, yeah, and so suddenly it was like, oh, okay, I, this this is meaningful volunteer work, uh, which I I wasn't new to, having you know worked uh, for the ACLU for a bit and so forth, but uh, all of a sudden it was like, oh, this is Volunteer work that I'm doing with people that I'm also hanging out socially, with socially, they're actually like a context in which I can be a trans person and not feel like a complete weirdo. And then, um, yeah, and then also it's kind of like, we, you know, like fighting for some kind of uh, actual ability to exist in the world and be able to go to the bathroom and stuff. So I was, uh, I was pretty energized by all of that stuff. Um, even as I kind of continued to, yeah, I guess I, I continued to work at Lego and was not, I was only kind of out at Lego. I, and I didn't, I didn't totally come out at work until 2004 when they were actually shutting down the office. They moved all their operations to England at that point. And I was like, I'm not going. And by the way, I'm a girl, Please change all of my information for bureaucratic purposes <laughs> so it was kind of a nice opportunity to just be like peace out I don't I didn't really want to deal with there were like a lot of weird misogynist programmers at that company um, so I was like yeah I don't feel totally safe just being totally out and myself uh, in that context but um, but yeah I was just kind of willing to do it and as a parting gesture, I was like, "By the way, tell me about Strap on." Um, so Strap on was a message board that was started uh, as an offshoot of the the uh, Chainsaw Records message board, and then I think also had a period of time or uh, roots in the Twee Kitten message board, which is like a, a like a queercore or punk music boards. And I was never really into. The, uh, the queer core punk scene. But, um, and so I, I had not participated in it back then, but it kind of became known as a gathering place, I think particularly for, for trans identified youth, like teens and twenties, uh, in part because there had been a few trans women there who had kind of galvanized some opposition to the Michigan Women's Music Festival, mm-hmm. saying like, you know, punk queer punk musicians should not play at this festival because the policy is transphobic. And I think as a result of that, especially sort of after it split off and became its own message board strap-on, um, it kind of started to gather a, a bit of moss as it rolled and um, pick up, you know, more queer and trans from trans people who were on the young side, had, you know, a bit of a weirder punk or kind of non-conforming sensibility uh, and who were kind of not, you know, not into this, like, really mainstreaming... Um, what's the word uh, that I'm looking for? Assimilationist mm-hmm. perspective on, on queerness and gender. So, um, yeah, like, I fell fell into that crowd because I, I, I think I, I just came across the message board somehow. I think it, it was not as a result of anyone in New York that I knew mentioning it, it, I don't know, it might have been, it's possible that it was Dean, because around the time I joined was also when, oh, I'm sorry. It was also when, um, yeah, there was some criticism of how Dean Spade and Craig Wilson were talking about this is a bathroom incident that happened during the WTO protests. And there were some people on, on StrapOn criticizing it. So it's possible that I heard about it just because someone was talking about it um, in New York, and then I, I looked it up. But when I, when I got there and I kind of was reading these message board boards, I was like, oh, wow, so I found my people. <laughs> you know, it was uh, peop- you know, a lot of younger people, mostly younger than me. At the time, I was like 26 or 27. Um, and most of the people were sort of younger, a lot of college students, but they were, yeah, they were talking about radical politics, they were talking about uh, politics of oppression and resistance, and they were sort of joking around and being goofy in a in a pretty, I guess, you know, kind of uh, early meme-like message board culture way, but uh, everyone was... Was queer or trans or a weirdo in some regard, and people, we, everyone was sort of like figuring out their identity and like where they stood in terms of um, privilege and what they were dealing with in real life and ways that they were oppressed and like whether they could uh, come out and like fights that they were having with people about politics and about you know being being themselves at school or in various spaces and and we were fighting each other all the time too. Um, over yeah like what what kinds of attitudes were messed up or not like what was problematic right And like that was kind of almost what strap-on became most known for was like this is the crucible in which people are yelling at each other about like what's problematic and what's not um and and crying and storming off and then coming back and talking about how they feel really marginalized by a particular discussion because it's not including this concerns of, the, of a particular group of oppressed people. Um, yeah, and I guess, you know, many years later, when these, these sorts of topics about, like, has call-out culture gone too far, or people complaining about Tumblr culture started to just go across the Internet, I was like, oh, yeah, that was, I'm, like, really familiar with this from, like, a dozen or more years ago. Um, because it's it's like very very was very similar to this little kind of microcosm of that stuff on Strap on, and some people have like blamed Strap on to me or as like you you people started all this, which I don't think is true. Um, it's we're just sort of like an early example of the kind of things that people are more prone to complain about in wider spheres now. But uh, I I uh, after having been hanging around there for a couple years I. I, uh, well, I did two things. One, I I picked a username which I still use to this day, uh, Medicenthi, and um, and I also be- I became a moderator of that board too. Since I think I was sort of I was one of the slightly older people, and I had been around on internet message boards for many years, having run a, a bulletin board system when I was in high school before the internet was really available, and then run the message ports for my online magazine when I was a college student and so forth. So I kind of understood how to, how to like get people to listen to you or pay attention to you by being, by saying smart things online, Mm -hmm. um, which I think is less true now. It used to be like people would read like longer posts online, uh, then than they do now. Uh, but that was kind of what I felt like I specialized in was like, Oh, okay. Everybody's having a big fight. Well, let me, let me try and like lay this out. And it was very gratifying because then these people were like, Ooh, you're so smart. And there was a lot of that mm-hmm. at strap on too, of people praising each other for being really smart. Yeah. So strap on, right. Uh, what was your username reference to? Um, I was trying to think of a username. That I felt like would would capture something about my gender. I don't remember what my I think the the username I used before that was of this domain that I've had for a long time, which I still use for my for my email. And um, I I kind of felt like oh that's a it's a pretty it was a pretty gender neutral kind of username or domain uh, that I had been attached to for a long time. But I kind of wanted to signal a little bit like, okay, I'm on the, I'm on like the trans-feminine spectrum. Uh, And I was thinking about, at the time, I think about the distinction between synthesis and analysis. And um, yeah, and about the difference between physics and metaphysics. And so I think I just sort of uh, portmanteaued. This word is like a, Metasynthesis, which I don't even know what it would what it means, right? It's not like really reference to anything and I was like I, that actually makes a pretty good slightly Slightly Femi just like barely Femi username if you just change synthesis into the <laughs> So that that was basically it
0: Where, What were the major political differences or tendencies
1: within strap on? I think some of it was definitely about who got to speak about what kinds of things, right? So the strap on was divided into a bunch of sub-forums. And there was a forum in which only trans or gender non-conforming people were allowed to post. There was a a forum in which only people of color could post. There was a forum for femmes, which I think was a you know, a little bit of a hazier edge there. But it was and uh, there were there's a forum for people who um grew up in or were poor um, so it's sort of like you know a, a class-oriented one so along as I think as many different axes like major axes of, of oppression that we sort of identify as being important um, at least the big ones where there are people who asked for it and said like oh I you know I really want to form to talk about being fat and fat phobia so we're like, yes, we made that forum. Right. So we didn't it wasn't like we were able to sort of subdivide endlessly, but if there were people saying like, yeah, there's some of us that want to talk about this issue, can we have like a, a space that's just for just for those those subjects and for those posters? Uh, can we have that? But it a lot of argument and discussion resulted from that but we're like, okay, who gets to post in the people of color forum? Mm-hmm. Like what's what's the center of it? And so there was a lot of kind of emerging analysis that was really yeah, informed sometimes by, by theory, sometimes by lived experience, usually kind of like a heady blend of stuff and then a lot of upset feelings too. And yeah, about, OK, where, where is the edge of people of color? Does that construct make sense? Um, you know, what, what about Romani people from Europe? What about, you know, people who are, who are like, think, or have been told by their parents that they're one-eighth Cherokee, things like that. It's like, where where are the edges of these things? And so there were a lot of, a lot of arguments and debates, sometimes that got quite personal, uh, about that kind of stuff. There were occasionally some, like, yeah, very heavy-duty discussions about trans issues and... Um yeah, how to how to deal with, with um differing attitudes towards people's bodies, talking about uh not not so far as I think the whole forum was sort of predicated on the idea of like the we're in opposition to the Michigan Women's Music Festival's blanket exclusion of trans women, right? The um but there were a lot of discussions about well where do preferences come into play like is it okay to, to be like I don't sleep with trans women I like trans men but not cis men how do we make sense of like these kinds of sexual preferences in the context of of people being oppressed uh, so there are a lot of like arguments and trying to hash through those things with you know very very mixed results I think um, and I tried to you know say smart things when I could, but it was also very much an exercise for me of like actually thinking through my own issues and my own feelings, like trying to articulate a gender politics on that site uh and yeah, and like a, a bunch of discussions about yeah like what people's individual relationships to beauty standards and expectations about bodies and like how they were negotiating that and yeah, like arguments erupted in those contexts too. Since when one person is talking positively about, like, well, here's how I deal with and and cope about it, and you know, and cope with issues particular to the ways that I'm oppressed, then uh, that it's quite possible or maybe inevitable that they make statements that generalize or frame things in a certain way that makes someone else feel excluded or marginalized and like. How you know? How can you say this thing, even though it's about your experience? It's like if you don't super strictly use I statements all the time, um, it's quite easy to make uh, make a comment that makes someone else upset. And I think we're sort of used to this in, say, like a therapeutic encounter group, right? Like that's kind of the stuff of a group like that. It's like, wait, but you're saying this stuff, and like that's really screws up my process. Um, but this was a message board, which was meant to be like both just a casual hangout space where people were talking about music and crushes and whatever and like, you know, what was going on around them and their sort of local scenes and also this space where people are like working out these deep issues with each other uh, but online where, you know, where people are, are kind of like flinging things back and forth semi pseudonymously, but also like hooking up with each other. And I, um, I met a a girlfriend who I dated for several years on Strap On. Um, it was probably, yeah, like one of the first communities where I actually felt like oh, you know, I I have friends who are like me, I can I can meet other queers who actually, you know, might consider me like a possible dating partner. Um, it was actually, yeah, it had the elements of an actual social scene, a community uh, where you could sort of exist like, like anybody else. So it was a, it was yeah, incredibly valuable for me in that context, especially because locally, uh, with with people who are around SRLP, there are very, very few, um, very few trans women, like a like a few around, um, at least at the beginning. And then as time went on, uh, a few more trans women showed up, and actually a, a number of them, like Alora Redfield, who went on to work for SRLP, um, were people that I also knew through Strap on, and there were even some people who because there were a bunch of strap-on people in New York uh, moved to this city, like, uh, like Bryn Kelly um, moved here in part because she knew a bunch of people here from the message board. Um, but, the, but both strap-on and, and the communities around SRLP had kind of grown out of what you know, five or 10 years before had been uh, like lesbian or, and, or sort of maybe more properly like dyke-centric communities. And um, yeah, so there were a lot of transmasculine people and a smaller number of trans women, and the it was pretty clear that a lot of the trans women in New York were were quite disconnected from community, and that there were very few like strong uh, loci of where trans women were gathering, and that um, there were yeah there was this sort of the, the the ball scene where there were a lot of black drag queens and trans women. There were um, sort of Latina clubs for trans women. Uh, and then there was sort of like everybody else who, for whatever reason, were not part of, of those scenes. And it certainly wasn't like every black or Latina trans woman was sort of part of one of those groups either. We're sort of like uh, isolated individuals. And so over time, I think it happened more rapidly on Strap On because it was people from all over the place. Kind of realizing, oh, this is actually a place that's friendly to trans women, and kind of uh, gathered up there. And there were, although I think Strap on was predominantly white, there were also quite a few people of color um, on that site who were major presences—black um, women and and quite a lot of Asians and, and Latinos too. The um, and the, at SRLP, I think it, it took a little bit longer for the community around SRLP to actually have more trans women. So in the period of time between, like, maybe 2002 and 2006 or so, I was, I, I think I, I really leaned quite heavily on Strap-On as a place where I was actually connecting socially with other trans women, too.
0: Uh, what would you say is some of the tendencies or insights from Strap-On that helped shape trans politics today? Or...
1: Ooh, that's a tricky one. I mean, I think it was, Strap-On was quite devoted to intersectional politics
0: Mm
1: -hmm. right from pretty early on and and as sort of shown by like everything that I was saying about all of these different forums and they weren't just kind of considered independently but like you could actually see the intersections happening there Mm -hmm. Um, and I think yeah some of these ideas about a a more total view of gender liberation that wasn't about having to conform to certain kinds of standards or expectations in order to be able to be trans. A lot of, um, there were a ton of arguments about, about realness really, uh, you know, what, what makes you sort of a legitimate trans subject? Like how do you know that you're trans? And I think that the, the, The outcome over and over again of those discussions was like, look, nobody, nobody can tell you, right? Like all of these kind of attempts to police the boundaries of being trans are full of shit. And that really it's your, your, your own liberation that you have to like figure out for yourself and not, um, not just sort of follow someone else's guidelines. And, uh, and that it's, yeah, that it's okay for you to be you. Uh, I think that, that that came across again and again, even though there were these sort of constant um, I, pressures, I guess, that for, from outside of, like, trying to figure out, like, oh, is it surgery that sort of makes a trans person more legitimate? Is it passing that makes a trans person more legitimate? All of these things. And exploring people's discomfort around all these topics. And I think it just... Over time, it kind of accreted like, oh, there's just there's just a lot, a lot of different ways of being trans, and that they're that scrabbling for legitimacy is not really going to help anybody. It's it's sort of like a, a you know a fool's game under capitalism and an oppressive system that tries to turn us against each other. So I think that that came out a lot in a way that wasn't. It's not the way that it would have come out by like one brilliant theorist writing about it and sort of laying it all out, although certainly, you know, Straton was definitely influenced by, by people like Judith Butler. Um, it was kind of, like, boiled up in a stew by many, many dozens of people kind of thrashing at it and wrestling with it personally over time that it was like, okay, this is kind of what's agreed upon um, as a result by this, by this community of people sort of struggling with themselves and each other and the communities that they were in.
0: Uh, and so SLRP you described it both as a service project and organizing and as a community for you can you tell me more about how those things work together and evolved over time
1: yeah it's a a good question so those those motivations were definitely intertwined for me like I I was working a a day job a few different day jobs over the, over the course of the sort of early years of SRLP because after I left Lego and began trying to interview to get a job as an, um, an out trans woman in New York. Um, and that, that was difficult sort of whole other story. I worked at, uh, Lambda Legal for a while. Uh, working on their website before I, I actually came to work in video games, but, um, SRLP was this was a place that I could go to be around other trans people and to sort of be working on something together that was important. And um, where we were having, yeah, like pretty real conversations about a lot of the same kinds of politics. You were there for some of really the early conversations uh, about like these intersections of race and class and trans issues. And um, all that stuff was being hashed out in a way that wasn't just theoretical or social or personal, but also like had to be intensely practical to figure out like what work is going to get done. How is it going to get funded? How is it going to be accountable? How is it going to involve different people from different experiences and all this stuff? Um, so it was very, very intense and felt extremely real and was I think a pretty high priority for me. Um, in terms of where I was putting my energy because of all of that and then also yeah and also it was a social context and a lot of the people who are involved as volunteers as collective members as employees also sort of knew and hung out with each other socially at you know queer dance parties on on the weekends this is the period of time when like a lot of people were going to the whole um, mm-hmm. A, a bar on the Lower East Side that on Thursday nights had, um, I guess it's, yeah, it's a sort of a, a mostly like a gay male owned bar back then. The space is still owned by the same people. But um, on Thursday nights they were like, oh yeah, we'll have a women's night. But this particular women's night was was flocked to by all like a, a ton of trans people, like mostly trans masculine people, but then like a like and, and like a lot of other people and sort of surrounding social networks. Um, yeah, the kind of the radical queer social scene, I guess you could call it of New York. And I think that's that's how people referred to it many years, maybe they still do. And um, yeah, so it was it was very deep by very deeply interconnected. So like a lot of the people that we're in that social scene. We're also volunteering at SRLP or could be counted on to show up for a fundraiser or something like that. Uh, and we're the real stalwarts. I remember when we used to try to go to go a little bit further afield to try to do fundraising at social events that were. Yeah, like at other types of venues or house parties of people like in the same same age group, age group and economic bracket. Um. We, we definitely had a lot less success in sort of like reaching out to people or raising money, um, in part because it's like a, a hipster party of a bunch of people who have gathered around musical taste in Williamsburg or something like that is just generally not a good place to do fundraising, it seems like, you know, they're like not gonna give, money, give you money um, for a cause, at least not back then. Um, unlike, say, like, you know, wealthy gay, Art gallery owners will probably give you some donations, and uh, but the, there was this kind of core group of people who were like the the social circle that SRLP was embedded in, and yeah, it was a, and that group of people for me existed as 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 the backdrop and support for SRLP and also as a place to sort of in the real world actually that like have all of my friends were kind of connected to that in some way. And then as more, as people sort of got involved in that social scene, also because there was strong overlaps with strap on there, were, you know, maybe eight or nine of us who were also kind of like pretty long time contributors to strap on, especially after people like Bryn moved here and, uh, and like jacka Ponte, mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, yeah, it was, it was kind of my, my whole social world was kind of entangled together. And it, so it was like, people that I hang out with, my sort of extended queer family that, you know, like go hang out at somebody's house and have Sunday dinner together, that kind of stuff. And, um, yeah, it was also in those social circles that that's, that's where I dated too, because I think it's true for a a number of, a lot of trans people, uh, I think maybe more reliably for trans masculine people in the radical queer scene than for trans women. Um, Because it's like, oh, this is where I could actually know that when I meet queer people, they're not going to immediately, like, be freaked out by the fact that I'm trans and not know what to do with it, or be flailing around, or, you know, yeah, be uncertain and maybe be like, I guess I could try that experimentally, which is kind of like the default if you're sort of trying to date people that you don't already know in the, in the rest of the world. Um, or even the rest of the the gay world of New York city. So it was like the, the safe dating pool, I guess, for a lot of trans people and a lot easier for trans masculine people than for trans women. But I, yeah, from between, between strap on and the radical queer, um, environs of New York, I, I dated a lot of people, and uh, so that it kind of worked out well for me in that sense. And I yeah, that was as much a motivation for me to sort of be around and like doing work and participating in community uh, as the political stuff was for sure. And you know that's like a big part of why you know young people go to dance parties, right? <laughs> so,
0: is there more you'd like to include about SLRP before we move on?
1: Um, I could certainly go on and on about SRLP. Uh, I think one of the most significant things is that it's always tried its hardest to operate as a collective structure mm-hmm. on a consensus decision-making model. Um, and with a very, very flat structure, like we don't have an executive director or anything like that. And I think that that's, that to me is one, like, one of the most enduring facts about SRLP. And it's always tried to be like, you know, very, very guided by some bedrock political principles. And it's just, it's been a a struggle along the way. I've been involved with it since, since back then when, when it kind of became a collective in 2000 and in 2003 or 2004, I guess we're almost at the 15 year anniversary of when Dean started in 2002. But um, yeah, there have been a, a lot of ups and downs. I think it's been really hard to figure out how to reconcile trying to provide legal services for people who in the local community who really need it, need, like need help because they're in prison or can't get their benefits or ID documents or having problems with their immigration status like all that stuff feels incredibly urgent and at the same time SRLP has all, always wanted to be a center of organizing and actually sort of generative politics going outwards and it's it's been a struggle for the entire history of the organization to try and like hold both of those things at once, and try to make sure that like you know that they're in balance with each other and both managing to be funded and and all of this stuff. It feels like very, very important work, and at the same time, I think it's it's been a little hard for me over the years to see see the sort of solid plodding forward work of SRLP. Uh, get eclipsed by by, you know larger organizations that are a little bit more agile in um in getting the message out very widely about uh about political struggles um certainly once we sort of hit the internet age of of trans organizing i think people that are using the internet platform to sort of spread uh, messages and education about trans people have been way more influential than srlp um, because the landscape has transformed so drastically in the last few years. And even before that, I think, you know, other local organizations doing similar work, like uh, like TOLDEF, the Trans-Legal Defense and Education Fund. Um, I think we're we're better at making kind of a, a, an impact on, on the uh, spectacular level of the national stage of like, oh, this is a big, important case. We need to make sure everyone knows about this. SRLP has always just been a little bit more of a, local you know gotta try and make sure people are taken care of and we also try to do a little bit of organizing but and uh that's been sort of growing very very steadily and slowly over the years um but it's always kind of been an uphill battle because they're trying to do both of those things at once and they're a little bit in tension with each other uh but I I I feel like it's it's been well it's been incredibly worthwhile for me personally and I know that uh, SRLP's work has changed the lives of of just many, many, many people who have been directly helped by services and been meaningful for people as a place to sort of come together um, and share analysis and organize and as a sort of a welcoming space too, and uh, yeah, and it's it's changed drastically in the last few years. There, you know, there's a whole new set of people there than when I started, and the kind of original crew of SRLP. Um, I guess, yeah, all of the kind of original crew had left by, like, 2015 or So you're 14. still involved? Yeah, yeah, I'm still on the collective. I think I'm, I'm technically the board chair, but that's just because somebody has to, like, sign the, the forms and stuff, and I've been around the longest. And, um, yeah, so I still try to stay involved as kind of an, I guess, kind of an elder member. A lot of the staff now are, yeah, they're people who have been come on board just in the last... Two to three years, some of them just one year. So I try to provide a sense of institutional memory. I think is like one of my main functions now, and um, yeah, some perspective and you know help resolving some things. So I'm I'm far less involved than I used to be, just mostly because of of time and uh, and having like a pretty busy full time job now and not having quite as much energy as I used to. But then I also often think somewhat reprimandingly to myself like oh, I'm not, I'm not as hooked into the social side, like that whole social side of SRLP is like really different now. It's not that original set of people. And for a long time, it was like my close friendships and relationships that like really kept me very close to SRLP. And when that changed, I, you know, I, I'm now more in the mode of like, I drop by to, to help out to when I can, like when there's something in particular I could be of use for. Uh, when I actually like have room in my schedule to actually make it to a meeting, but i'm not I'm not as regular a presence as i as I once was
0: yeah. has uh, the politics changed or developed atP what do you say
1: I think that there's it it has changed and developed I think with the the people that are involved. Uh, I think that the the slightly newer slightly younger set of of activists, organizers, and lawyers at SRLP are, are um, are more keenly aware of that you that it's a danger to kind of um, work yourself to death or burn or to the point of burnout. Uh, they're a little bit more well versed in trying to think about an organization sustainably, which is really nice. And um, I don't think that the overall. Politics and mission of SRLP have changed. I think that there's a much higher awareness than there used to be of anti black racism, specifically, mm-hmm. uh, which of course has you know, been influenced in part by the Black Lives Matter movement. And although SRLP has always kind of organized against police violence, I think it, you know, it, it's taken on a different uh, urgency and tenor with the, the, yeah, just of course the escalating uh, violence specifically against black people. Um, And I think that SROB has gotten better and better over time at including uh, specifically Black and Latino trans women in the sort of the organizing part of the work. Um, There still are not as many um, Black and Latino trans women working directly for the organization as I would like or as as I think anybody there would like. Um, But it's been kind of difficult to sort of keep the organization staffed, period and keep up with all the work as there's been quite a bit of tumult. But I think things are things are getting a little bit better in terms of organizational stability um, after the sort of huge turnover of like a lot of the original staff and the long-term staff leaving all kind of in one year, a couple years ago. So yeah, I'm optimistic that you know SRLP kind of knows what a bunch of its problems are and is always kind of struggling with with limited human capacity to try and figure those things out so i think that they'll they'll just keep on doing that and very very slowly getting better but it's yeah it's always like a little bit at a time with srlp because there's constantly just a huge amount of work to do to just help people with their their pressing survival problems with the legal system
0: so you mentioned your own employment difficulties when you left lego and you mentioned Mm -hmm. lambda what was your arc of uh, professional work and employment after you came out as
1: trans? Yeah, so when I came out as trans, I I had decided to leave this job at LEGO, and I had, I had some savings, but at the time I was still under the impression of like, well I need to save this enormous amount of money in order to be trans. Um, and yeah, so I actually went around and, and interviewed a few places and actually I, I was surprised I, I and I got some job offers. Nobody made mention of me being trans. I have no idea whether I was passing or not, but um, it wasn't really that much of an issue and so I actually realized oh maybe I could sort of pick what job I want. I almost went to work for some massive hotel chain I can't remember what it was like Marriott or something um, just because I was looking for any job but then um, I think it was, yeah, it was actually Dean that mentioned that Lambda Legal was looking for someone to work on their website, so I applied there, and and they were they were quite happy to have me because I had some experience, and, you know, also I was a, now a different kind of diversity hire. The, um, yeah, and but I wasn't super happy working at Lambda, in part because it wasn't quite the type of creative work uh, in entertainment that I had been used to doing at Lego, where I worked on a lot of... Games and toys and software creativity tools for kids, uh, and and also I, I was sort of a little bit annoyed by Lambda's politics at the time, uh, where they were they were quite focused on impact litigation with model clients, uh, who could not possibly have any kind of criminal record or any sort of problems in their past. Uh, they are so, the, you know, they have these clients who are, like, wealthy white gay people who have been discriminated against at their country club, like, actual case, right? Um, and I was like, this is not, you know, this is not really what I want to be doing. Uh, it's certainly very different than our than the approach at SRLP, which is sort of focus on most vulnerable people first. Um, so I, I, I leapt at the chance. I had a friend who was telling me, like, hey, you should really ask your friends who you worked with and did projects on at Lego, whether they're hiring or like, you know, just try to get back into that kind of work. Um, you know, I bet, I, I bet they, that they might actually be interested or have a job for you. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll do that. And then it turned out, yeah, actually uh, a friend of mine um, whose office is on the other side of that wall um, was was hiring at his game company, and I had worked with um, his game company on a number of projects at Lego, uh, where I was kind of acting as like the, on the sort of the publisher side or sort of producer side, um, like hiring them to make some games for Lego's website, and, and yeah, and so when I talked to him, he was like, oh, oh my gosh, yeah, of course, we would love to have you. It would be really awesome. Um, you have a ton of experience with this stuff from working at Lego. And so all of a sudden I was like, oh, I could actually just work on games all the time, which I don't think had somehow like hadn't quite occurred to me because I sort of thought of myself as a web person who had a lot of expertise in games and often was sort of like, you know, headed up game projects because of that. Um, but I think I had always been like a little bit intimidated by the idea of working in video games. But I, so, but I went to work for that company and, um, yeah, and I've been working as a game designer ever since then. And I, I worked at that company, which is called game lab from about 2000, uh, 2005 until 2008. Then it was sort of went out of business as the sort of recession hit, and um, I worked for a number of other, like, small startup companies making games here in New York over the next few years and did a lot of freelancing uh, as well. Worked on my own games, did some educational games through PBS and other places like that. Um, Wrote a textbook with another trans woman uh, about games, which was really cool. And, um, yeah, then all of a sudden in, like, 2012 there were, like, a kajillion trans women working in games. Um, and I had never met any trans people make, making games before that. And all of a sudden, there was this gigantic wave of, you know, what's kind of being called a, the queer queer games movement, which started around, like, 2012. And, um, yeah, and then there were all these these younger trans people being like, oh, my gosh, you've been here this whole time? Who are you? Again, and I'm like, oh, why? yeah, I'm just me. You know, I've been just plodding along, working, finding what work I can, working as a freelancer. But then all of a sudden there was this, you know, whole big other community of queers and trans people entering into this field where I had kind of been plodding away working professionally for many years while having a sort of a totally separate sphere of stuff that I was working on with SRLP and in the, the, uh, the radical queer community. That was my main social context. Um, yeah, so that was kind of like a whole... Other new weird chapter. And um, yeah, and then a few years ago, I ended up here at, uh, at NYU where I'm teaching students how to make games. And yeah, and I have like a you know, ton of queer and trans students here too. So all of a sudden, it's like, yeah, I went from being really alone in general here in New York, defying this context of strap on and SRLP where I could actually be around other trans people. And then reached another sort of crust where it was like all of a sudden also my my professional life and my, you know, the sphere in which I do cultural production and criticism, also now there's a whole bunch of queer and trans people, which in that intervening time it was like all of my interactions with queer and trans people were outside of work and all of my interactions in the professional sphere were with cis people and like mostly white guys. Um, Yeah, so...
0: What happened with why? What led to so many trans women entering into the gaming industry? How did that go down, and what was that like? I
1: am not totally sure. I think there were there were a couple key figures that kind of all popped up at around the same time. I think for I, I think trans people, especially trans women, um, there have been a lot of, of trans women who are involved in games and video games for many years for various reasons um, people speculate as to why it, it may have something to do with the power of make-believe or being a nerd uh, any number of reasons the sort of ability to kind of like step outside of yourself for a while um, so there are i think there have always been a lot of trans people in games uh, especially trans women because I think it's during the 80s and 90s at least uh, games were heavily, much more heavily pushed onto male-signed people. Mm-hmm. And um, so it leads to this point where yeah like there's a bunch of trans women who have grown up thinking about games as a source of refuge and some of them are learning how to make games and then deciding to transition. And Kind of like a lot of the the people that I met on Strapon, they're they're a bit younger than me, maybe you know closer to like ten years or ten to twelve years younger than me. In the case of uh, all the transhumanist games, but the um, at the older end of that range, maybe only a few years younger than me is Anna Anthropy, who was the co-author of the, the textbook that I wrote about designing games, and she was kind of very much in the lead of this stuff. She. Um, was part of a, a community of sort of more artistically minded independent game creators in New York and also in like online forums that were centered around games and she came out at some point and uh, was was very was very open about it in part I think well I don't know I, think, I, I can't really speak for her but She came from a different generation than me. Like, when I first was trying to figure out how to transition, like I was saying, it was all of this very, very conformism-oriented, assimilationist stuff that I kind of came up with and then, like, broke out of by finding strap-on. And Anna, for multiple reasons, including that, you know, I think she always, you know, saw herself as a, you know, not necessarily going to pass and just doesn't give a shit about it. Like um, willing to be seen as a pissed off trans lady, uh, and kind of just straightforwardly out, um, and I think the way that I was like raised in trans culture was to think that that was like way too deadly, um, and that's just in part of the fact the fact that it, like it was five years before or something like that or, or ten years before uh, Anna was coming out, and um, so she kind of like really shook people up a lot in ways that I never did because I was, I was a little bit like more like under the radar, not talking about being trans. Mm-hmm. Like everyone that I worked with knew I was trans, right? For the most part, like some people I guess didn't. But um, I was, yeah, I was kind of like mostly keeping it to myself and sort of like doing my own work and like putting, putting themes from, from, you know, my life among the queers into my games in more subtle ways. It was a little bit more like a gay person writing for the Mary Tyler Moore Show in like, you know, 1970s. And and Anna was like just very much wearing it on her sleeve and started, you know, making games about being uh, a trans woman in a kink relationship, about being polyamorous, BDSM themes in games, all this stuff. And... Um, it was it was very uh, explosive in a lot of ways like that people were like oh my god i had no idea you could even do that and she made an autobiographical game about her transition which was like yeah an extremely widely played game among people that play games online including a lot of kids and it was like a lot of people's first exposure to like Oh, this is what transition involves because it was in video game form. It's an autobiographical video game of which there were, at the time, like maybe three examples in history. So she was like a, a definite pioneer. And um, I think a lot of people, I, when I met her and started hanging out with her, because I was like, I, I should obviously have to go meet Anna, um, there were a bunch of other people in this sort of queer scene in Oakland who. Is that
0: where she's based? Yeah,
1: so that's where she was based at the time. She was actually, she was here in New York then she moved out there. Uh, And she and her friends and her sort of, yeah, extended circle of friends, including some um, people that she was in various kinds of relationships with uh, and other people from the sort of nearby area, a lot of them were, got, were getting interested in making games, or they were interested in games already, and were also like, oh, I can be out and queer and make games. I can be trans and make games. And it sort of started to snowball, turned into this, um, quote, queer game scene, which I have to put in quotes because there was a lot of, um, I think, overexposure and sort of like a scene was named by people outside of the scene, which often cause a sort of little cr- joint creative enterprise to disintegrate in on itself once it's like this is who you people are right so I think there was a bit of a problem with that and uh, a lot of them were kind of pissed off that they were just being sort of seen in this one way or that they were being being told by the media like oh these people are making games to help you understand what it's like to be queer or trans uh, and yeah, I was kind of like standing at one side of all this stuff, being like, yeah, you guys go for it, I'm supporting you, but like, I've never done that type of work. Um, yeah, so, I'm, so I was sort of over here doing my own thing, but all of a sudden, like, knowing all of these people, and kind of rooting for them, or still, I guess, in somewhat of the same way as I did on StrapOn, trying to just, yeah, commentate and offer advice and sort of occasionally say something smart but I'm quite aware that I'm now, <laughs> I'm now significantly older, so I, I'm at the point where I'm in more of a danger of being a fuddy-duddy than just a mm-hmm. slightly older cool kid. I, I, um,
0: there's been a lot of news around Gamergate mm-hmm. and 4chan and sort of dramatic and explosive gender politics in the gaming, game industries, uh, and most of that news is not that I've seen has not included any mention of trans women to speak of. Could you describe how the queer game scene and trans women in gaming is fitting within the kind of broader picture of
1: changing gender politics in oh, Within the broader picture? So it's all the same people. Yeah. The, it's the same crowd of people that are, have been in the crosshairs of the Gamergate stuff. Not all of those people are trans.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, some of them, a lot of them are queer. Uh, and it's often not really mentioned. And um, yeah, as part of the narrative, there are a bunch of people who were sort of in their like, primary targets of that Gamergate kind of reactionary troll movement um, who are trans women. And I don't know, it's, it's funny because there, there were sort of two different types of articles in, in the sort of 2013 2014 window. There are a bunch of articles that are about, oh look, all of the, these diverse people are making games now, uh, including like all of these queer games, games by, by women, games about, by people with who are struggling with mental health issues who are talking about their experiences. And those were uh, a lot of the games that generated this huge backlash. Um, but the other type of story where it was like, these angry trolls are sort of coming after women, Tended to lead the 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 part that like was about oh these women are queer or trans or they're in close community with queer and trans women mm-hmm. um, they're all sort of part of uh, a a distributed but like really tight on the internet together kind of like in a circle of people on on Twitter who like see each other at at game conferences and festivals kind of who are performant artistic community um, that was targeted by these attacks and a lot of the yeah a lot of the the way it was portrayed in the media was like oh these these poor women are being victimized um yeah it didn't really kind of go more into like what the nature of the community it's that so we're, were making things was uh and yeah and it's of course it's not that you can't just sort of say like they were only targeting trans people or only targeting queer women they were you know scattershot uh they they came after my game for a little bit i was kind of like you know more of a nearby target but this game right here which is a uh what is it it's a game called Consentical about negotiating sex between a human being and an alien <laughs> and um yeah so this is sort of my my queer politics game and that that game too was sort of targeted for a little while in this broad sweep of like trolls um, coming after whoever they could. Really, you know, much more incidentally and without you know a lot of impact on me compared to the people who were who were very much in the center of the crosshairs. But it was all part of this this pool, uh, and I I really see it as a a very immediate uh, reactionary strike against games getting very diverse in a lot of yeah. ways. That was happening immediately prior, which wasn't just about women making games. It was about, yeah, about queers making games and trans women making games. Um, and women writing games criticism, too. I think that that was a big part of it. Um, and yeah, and so it's, it's not like, yeah, you don't get the full story of yeah. all of that stuff. And that's very
0: helpful. Mm-hmm.
1: And it's, it's definitely devastated that community. A lot of people sort of left and stopped making or writing about games afterwards. It was like, you know, having a, a virtual and, and thus less physically harmful kind of um, pogrom or, you know, like a, a rampage of, of angry men coming through the streets, like breaking the windows of your community. And so a lot of people were like, I'm out of here. Other people are like, I'm going to kind of lay low for a while, but stick around. But it's, it, yeah, it was, it was pretty bad. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Is there more you'd like to say about your life as a game designer and the game design community and the trans and queer politics of that?
1: Um, I think I've been extraordinarily lucky in part because I'm here in New York, which is kind of at the edge of the game industry, strangely enough. It's like we're not in the center, which is like over in Silicon Valley. Uh, and So we have a slightly different, slightly weirder, slightly smaller scale form of game development that happens here. And as a result, and I think because it's a big metropolitan area with a lot of a lot of queers and trans people here, um, I haven't really had to deal with a lot of transphobia or discrimination um, in the context of my work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm I constantly feel really really fortunate and lucky and, and also grateful for that. Even though you know a lot of the a lot of the people that I've worked with and been mentored by over the years. Um, have been white, straight, cis guys, right? You're sort of like typical face in the game industry. But because, because of the, the place that they occupy in the bigger cultural sphere of games, where they're a little bit more, they're a little bit more like against the totalizing capitalist politics of the game marketplace, or they have a slightly more artistic bent, or they're just scrabbling to do more marginal forms of work. Um, I've generally found like there there are very few of those types of those like sort of straight white cis guy um, in in the in the New York little game scene that are are horrible bigots. Um, yeah, there's I've been, I've encountered so little of that that I'm kind of astonished, and I feel super fortunate and. Yeah, I mean, I feel grateful to individuals and I always feel weird being like, oh, professionally, I'm really indebted to all of these straight white cis guys because that's kind of who there was yeah. when I showed up. Um, but they were they were always, like, really good to me and never made any kind of big deal about me being, you know, a half-Japanese queer trans woman. And they were always just very, very cool. And so I guess I feel lucky. It's like I get to be part of a slightly, um, you know, yeah, slightly indie or alt, slightly more artsy, um, nerdy cultural scene that, that kind of just accepted as a given from the beginning of like, of course we're not going to be homophobic or racist or, or transphobic, which is definitely not the case everywhere, right? But uh, so I've, I've been really lucky to be here and I, that, that's probably what I most think about at that intersection.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, in closing, do you want to give a slightly broader picture of your life right now, your family life, or your um, social dynamics at the moment?
1: Well, I guess, other than the fact that we all live in a increasingly fascist kleptocracy, uh, I I'm really, I'm, I think I'm in a phase of settling down. I'm in my forties now mm-hmm. and I, I'm not out at queer dance parties as much as I used to be. I got married last year, which is something that like, you know, 10 years ago, I might not have imagined doing. Um, and yeah, and, and I was able to, with a lot of savings and, uh, and with my wife, uh, get a buy a home in Sunset Park. So I feel like I'm really, you know, I've become like a solidly middle-class professional. It's kind of a weird transformation from a few years ago when I was like, I I, I sort of barely had a home at some points, um, and was just doing a lot of freelance work to get by and was like rap- rapidly draining my bank account. Um, but now I'm, yeah, I'm sort of like, I've, I've been stabilizing for a couple of years and kind of, uh, yeah, getting out of, yeah, having like better mental health practices and stuff like that too. And yeah, building a foundation, which I can try to, I don't know, keep, keep helping people. I'm doing a lot more helping students these days. and I found is like, well, of course, that's what you're supposed to do if you're a professor. Um, but it both takes up a lot more time and energy and is more sort of, gratifying than I would have imagined before coming to work full-time. I had been teaching as an adjunct for a while, but but now I'm like, oh, that's like actually a pretty big deal, big responsibility. It's where I should be putting a ton of my energy. Um, yeah, and I'm fortunate that I have like a bunch of interesting weirdos for students here, too, mm-hmm. from a lot of different backgrounds. So, yeah, life is pretty good for me, at least in my little tiny local sphere, even though there's some horrible stuff happening more widely. And uh, yeah, but I'm, you know, continue to work on political response for that, both in the organization work I keep doing, and the protests I keep going to, the Supreme Court amicus curiae briefs that I, that I contribute tiny bits to, like that just happened yesterday. And um, yeah, and then also, yeah, the kinds of games that I'm making and my students are making.
0: Thank you. Hmm?